Welcome to the 44th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is Exploring the Independent Broker-Dealer Space with Andrew Daniels of Commonwealth Financial Network. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other resources. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com slash independence101 for the top five episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to the series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review. It serves as a guide to us, as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. In 1979, Joe Deitch set out to build what he described as an open and supportive environment where advisors could be true to themselves and to their clients, follow their dreams, and grow to their heart's content. Back then, Deitch's vision was unique amongst what was a much more limited number of independent broker-dealers than there are today. Yet he persisted, and four decades later, Commonwealth Financial Network has grown to become the nation's largest privately held independent RIA and broker-dealer. And while still smaller in size than many of their behemoth competitors, the Commonwealth name and reputation is considered to be one of the most well-respected in the industry, garnering many awards, including being named Broker-Dealer of the Year by Investment Advisor Magazine not once, but 10 times. 41 times annual top 100 places to work, with many times in first and second place. And J.D. Power & Associates named Commonwealth as the highest in independent advisor satisfaction amongst financial investment firms five times, most recently in 2018. What is it that's made Commonwealth so successful in such a crowded and competitive marketplace? To answer that question, I've asked Andrew Daniels, the firm's managing principal of business development, to join me on this episode. He'll share how, some 40 years later, The Commonwealth name continues to resonate with advisors considering independence and what's next for the firm. Andrew, thank you so very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Mindy. Thanks for having me. Well, let's jump in. Lots to talk about. Commonwealth is an incredibly well-reputed independent broker-dealer. Could you describe the value proposition and how the firm differentiates itself from the many others in the space? So, Mindy, when I think of Commonwealth, I often describe us as time merchants. I think we're in the business of giving our advisors more time in the day. And in fact, I don't think of us as a wealth management shop. I think of us as a time shop giving time to those advisors who themselves are doing the wealth management. And our responsibility through human and technological resources to leverage their productivity, where we have spent the last 20 years building rather than buying an integrated technological solution and where we have invested continuously almost since the birth of the firm, but certainly in my 21 years here in the human resource of Commonwealth, 
we end up giving our advisors an integrated human and technological resource that makes them more productive. And we do this quite selfishly. We do this because we understand at every turn that we get paid when our advisors get paid. In our lobby, we have a signed declaration of indispensability. And it's one of those core recall cues, if you will, that drive our thinking at the firm. A long time ago, Joe came to all of us and said, hey, today there's a regulation that demands that registered representatives affiliate with a broker dealer. We want to make our resource so good that the advisors deem us indispensable. And even if that regulation were to go away, we would retain the advisor because of the service that we provide. And indeed, as you look at what's happening in the industry today and the shift to fees, the shift to running your own RIA, one could say that that regulation has gone away, but our advisors are choosing to stay with us and run their fee-only practices through Commonwealth, which I think is a testament to this value proposition and that indispensability. Yeah, thank you for that. And we'll get to talking about the typical advisor under the Commonwealth umbrella in a minute. But take us back a second to yourself and your background prior to Commonwealth. When did you join the firm and what was it about Commonwealth that attracted you to it? (laughs) I have been blessed with a colorful quilt of professional experience through the years. And I have an uncommon, true to our nomenclature, path to Commonwealth. I joined Commonwealth in March of 1988 as a manager in our operations area, and I had been out of the business for about eight and a half years. I had cut my teeth fresh out of school at Fidelity, did three years of what I affectionately refer to as hard time there before moving on, and had done a handful of different things, not the least of which was working as a navigation officer on a tall ship. But I got married while I was at sea, and when I got married, going out to sea isn't what you do. So I started driving a commuter boat on Boston Harbor, which was fun for about a week, and then you're just a bus driver on the water. Commonwealth appeared sort of out of the blue as somebody who had worked for me at Fidelity approached me about coming to work here and where my new bride wanted a a house and I was making about $20 and a fried bologna sandwich a week. The boat job wasn't going to cut it. So Commonwealth was kind of serendipitous. In truth, though, I came here thinking that I'd be here long enough to find that house and then I'd go back and get another boat job. But 21 years later, I'm still here. The answer to your specific question, both then and now, is that what I found at Commonwealth was a firm committed to an environment where we really put the advisors, their clients, and our employees first. And that's been true at every turn in the road since I joined, and I'm confident before I joined, and I see that in our future. So that's what pulled me here, and that certainly is what has kept me here through these years, that deep-seated, unwavering commitment to taking care of other people. Which is amazing. And tell us, in that 21-year period, how much has the firm grown since you've joined? It's, I don't want to say exponential, but it's certainly grown a lot, maybe not relative to some of our peers in the industry, but for us it has. When I started, I was about the 75th employee, and we had one half of one floor in one of the four buildings that we now occupy on both coasts. At the time, we were just shy of 400 advisors. 
Today, we have about 750 permanent employees at Commonwealth's home office split between Boston and San Diego, and these 750 employees support close to 1,900 active advisors around the country who are averaging just shy of 700,000 in gross dealer concession apiece. Okay, that is extraordinary growth. So I know Commonwealth is coming up on an anniversary, actually 40 years in the industry. And it's extraordinary, especially in an industry that's really anything but static. Tell us a little bit, if you would, about the history of the firm and how culturally it's changed over time. It's been an interesting evolution for sure. I'm, I continue to be very, very proud to be a part of it. And Joe made me a partner about 12 years ago. And having a voice in the direction of Commonwealth has been one of the most meaningful things in my life. Joe started the firm in June of 79. So this month is our 40th anniversary. And he himself was an, an advisor at the time. He would say, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have any responsibility. I had boundless energy and a fair amount of ignorance. And so I thought I could build a better mousetrap. And he set off to do it. Commonwealth's early years were fits and starts of Joe's entrepreneurialism. And he had, one would argue today, too many irons in the fire in the very early goings of Commonwealth. But in 1988, we partnered with National Financial as our clearing firm, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fidelity. And we've had a fairly consistent evolution since that time, an evolution of adding tools, adding products, adding resources, all designed to help an independent wealth manager be better for his or her clients. From day one, Joe was committed to two driving principles, quality and community. And those sound maybe boring, but they have been the cornerstone of our evolution and they have been the divining rod that has helped us steer through the last 40 years. Joe wanted Commonwealth to be fun, to be invigorating, to be challenging, and to be moral from day one. And I believe we are today. What has happened is, is that we have leveraged Fidelity's brand recognition and Commonwealth's engine building, both human and technological, to give our advisors today what amounts to a self-clearing firm with the brand recognition of Fidelity. So we have kind of the best of both worlds, I believe, for prospective advisors where you have this intimate community committed to quality that has built its own toolbox and that simultaneously gives that advisor brand recognition with their clients from a safety and security standpoint. We have, as you're well aware, been private since day one, and that's a core value for each of the 12 managing partners. I anticipate in the time to go that we will remain a private firm, that we will remain totally independent from a product standpoint, that we will continue to offer leverage bringing tools, uh, both human and technological, to good advisors who put their clients first. And so we've evolved the toolbox has gotten stronger and more dynamic, but the value system has remained in place since day one. And I think that's a hallmark to where Commonwealth is today. 
That's actually an interesting phenomenon you talk about. So first of all, let me just clarify that the Joe you referred to is Joe Deitch, who is the founder and chairman of Commonwealth. And second of all, to say that it feels to an outsider almost like Commonwealth is a cult. And I say that in a really loving and positive way. The feedback we get for anyone that either looks at the firm, explores it, or to advisors that practice under its umbrella, is that it's its own cultural phenomenon that is, maybe it's because it's private and that in and of itself differentiates it from the rest, but it is its culture dedicated to quality and community that often defines it. Let me pivot for a second to the advisors. You mentioned that today there are 1,900 advisors with average production of about 700,000 each. So- Talk to us a little bit, if you would, about the reasons that some of those advisors came to Commonwealth. What were their drivers? If they were coming from a brokerage firm, if they were at the likes of Morgan or Merrill or UBS or some other such captive brokerage organization, what was it that had them choose Commonwealth? And what is it a little bit about those advisors that they are looking for that brings them to the firm? That's a great question. You touched a little bit in talking about what Joe has built here, kind of tied to cultishness. And I sometimes find myself using that same word. This really is a firm of both at the advisor side and at the home office side of people with a similar set of beliefs and values. And we have been attractive to folks who have felt let down from a service standpoint and from a voice standpoint, who have felt over time that they felt they were working for their broker-dealer RIA rather than the other way around. And I think one of the hallmarks of Commonwealth is that our service model, where it's predicated on our mutual success, acknowledges that for Commonwealth to thrive and be successful, our advisors have to thrive and be successful. And that has developed into a service platform, an attitude, a culture, an approach, a growth model, and so forth, built around bringing together people who have a similar set of goals and who are like-minded. And the folks who have come to Commonwealth, I think, are looking for a place where they have a voice. They're looking for a place that is evolving with them. They're looking for a place that offers depth of product, that offers breadth of infrastructure, and maybe wrapped around it all, they're looking for a place that they can truly be a part of something, a community where they're acknowledged, where they're respected, even where they're friended. I take tremendous pride in the fact that I'm good friends with our advisors. They're not just a revenue source. They're my community. And I go on vacation with them. My kids know their kids. That level of intimacy is a driver for us. And I think a key attractive component for people who've been at either massive institutions or just different service models where they felt adrift, where they felt that they haven't had a say or haven't been heard or don't feel attended to or when they or their teams have needs, those needs go unrewarded. And at Commonwealth, we've just taken an approach that 
recognizes the humanity of the people who are with us. And I think that comes straight from Joe, although he surrounded himself with a partner group who believes in that as fiercely as he does, but a commitment to humanity that then leverages the business part of it. Make no mistake, this isn't just some funky, culty place here. This is a serious place of business, but we believe we do the business better when we have a close, if not intimate connection with our advisors, that I can grant exceptions when I've made a bet with you on the Red Sox and the Yankees and my kids have played at the beach with your kids because we know each other at a different level. So that's actually a great answer. And without sounding like this is meant to be a sales pitch for Commonwealth, I can tell you that my firm is representing a team of advisors that is coming from another broker dealer, independent broker dealer that evaluated many options, all of which were quality options and is committed to join Commonwealth in the coming months. And while Everything you're talking about, the quality and community, this sort of relationship-based approach, the access to Joe Deitch, all of it is was appealing. I think the real secret weapon was Commonwealth's practice management capabilities. Could you just take 60 seconds and talk about that a little? Sure. So there's practice management exists at Commonwealth in two ways. One is practice management, the ideology, which goes back to what I said at the beginning about us being time merchants. We understand that if you're talking to us anywhere in the firm, at some level, we're both losing money because you're not talking to your clients, you the advisor. So we have tremendous impetus at the firm to leverage your client facing time, which doesn't mean rush you off the phone like a call center, but which does mean answer your question clearly, directly, and get the advisor or their staff person back to what they're doing. And that is then replicated in a more finite fashion in the practice management department, which in my way of thinking appreciates that excellent wealth managers may or may not be excellent CEOs. And to the extent that we can help those advisors with the CEO stuff, with business and risk management, with succession planning, with marketing, with operational workflow within your practice, with HR, where we can help those advisors with all of those things, it stands to reason that they won't spend production time managing them. And that time will then be spent meeting with the Smiths and the Joneses, which is how we both get paid. So the practice management department is sort of an embodiment of the appreciation of the advisor's time. And we've built up skill sets at the home office using HR as an example to help them from creating an ad to put it in the paper to find a new sales assistant, to helping with interview questions, to helping with personality assessments, to helping with compensation programs, all the way through that assistant's been with you seven years and it isn't working out anymore. And how do we end that relationship? Commonwealth helps with that soup to nuts. And we do so in a multitude of other areas, also expertised by the practice management department. That actually brings me to the next question. You know, Cambridge, the broker dealer, is one that is often sort of in a lot of people's mind lumped together and compared to Commonwealth because they're both thought of as boutique broker dealers. So with respect to practice management, how do you think that Commonwealth differentiates itself from a fellow boutique broker dealer like a Cambridge and behemoth broker dealers like an LPL or Raymond James, for example? 
First of all, I have to say that I have tremendous respect for all of those firms. I think each of us does it a little bit differently, but each is solid in its own right, and I respect each of them. The leadership in each of those firms are thoughtful, are truly independent. I think care about the advisors. And so they're forging ahead. Each of us are forging ahead in our own direction, but we've all chosen somewhat different paths. You mentioned Cambridge as a boutique comparative, and I think Cambridge is similar in that we're both privately held. And I think Cambridge is similar in that we both have put the strongest maybe emphasis on sort of culture and connectivity of those four. But if you look at Cambridge, they're more than double the total advisor headcount of ours. So it starts to not be exactly the same thing as boutique. And the average production per advisor there is less than a third of what ours is. So you start to have some key differences in the total number of advisors that the home office is serving and the quality of the company that you keep. And and I'm not casting dispersions on anybody. I'm merely suggesting that Cambridge has chosen to participate in a somewhat different slice of the marketplace than we have. And you could say LPL and you could say Raymond James have each taken somewhat different approaches. Those two as publicly traded firms You know, LPL has been much more of an acquirer of firms, and Raymond James has sort of, they made one key acquisition, but they've grown organically, but then they have their employee channel. And so we've all done it a little bit differently. I don't think one is right or wrong. And I work very hard coaching my recruiting staff not to try and talk people into coming to Commonwealth, but to share who we are what we do and what we believe in and help that prospective advisor understand if that is indeed the right fit for them or not. And if at the end of the day, they decide we're not the right fit, that's okay. You can't have too many friends. I want to go back for a second to something you said. You talked about how 1,900 advisors now under the Commonwealth umbrella, $700,000 in average production per advisor. Could you make the assumption then that if I were an advisor who were generating $3 million in revenue, that Commonwealth wouldn't in fact be the right community for me because the average advisor is only generating $700,000 in production? I think it depends on what that prospective advisor is trying to solve. We have probably 20 individual advisors who will gross over $2 million. In terms of multi-million dollar practices, I don't have the number directly at hand, but it's a number significantly bigger than that. We have just a growing number of multiple advisor practices doing multiple millions of dollars. The real question for that $3 million producer is, what are they trying to solve? And that, I think, helps you, the advisor, decide wherever you're going to go, because whether you choose Schwab and a satellite broker dealer option for your hybrid practice, or whether you choose Schwab to be the custodian for your pure RIA, or whether you choose Commonwealth to be a fee-only practice and operate within our corporate RIA, but using your brand, or whether you choose to go to LPL and operate under their hybrid infrastructure, each one of those solutions is going to have a different 
sort of CBA attached to it, almost like if you drew a pro and con spreadsheet down for each one of them, you're going to find things that are going to make one ultimately the most attractive. And I think Commonwealth is a firm that is built for the outsourcer, built for the advisor who says, I want to be in the client engagement business at some level in the money management, wealth management business, but I'm not interested in being in the infrastructure management business. And a number of those options that I mentioned put significantly higher requirements on the advisor for their time to manage the infrastructure. And I'm not saying that's wrong. There's a lot of people who love doing that and who that's a key part of what makes their world spin. And you should explore that. But probably that person is a less ideal fit for Commonwealth, regardless of production, than the person who says, yeah, I want that help with my HR and I don't want to do my own fee billing and fee debiting. And I don't want to worry about technological integration because I want to be spending my time with my clients or my family or my avocations. And I think that's where the rubber hits the road with Commonwealth. And whether the advisor is generating multi-millions or 500,000 in production, it's for the advisor that wants to be the outsourcer of those services. Is that correct? That's my belief, Mindy. I, I think that's where we really have created raving fans, people who come here and, and they have Commonwealth to fall back on to manage as much or as little as they want to hand off to us. And there certainly are people here who are pretty self-tending. And so I'm not wanting to dissuade anybody from having a conversation with me. But I do think that the number of folks who come here and say, I'm here because Commonwealth is going to do this, that, and so forth for me, that's where our bread is buttered. Got it. So you mentioned just now about advisors that are evaluating their prospective breakaways. So they're coming from, let's say, a traditional brokerage firms. They are an employee now at a Merrill Lynch or a Stiefel Nicholas or a, a UBS or something of the sort. And they're evaluating breaking away and going independent for the first time. If they are evaluating, which would be appropriate, both the independent broker-dealer world and the RIA hybrid space, what are the things you think that those advisors should think about? And uh, maybe the first place is if you could define the difference between RIA hybrid and independent broker-dealer, and then talk a little bit about the things you think advisors should think about. So <laughs> interestingly, Mindy, I don't think I fit, I Commonwealth fit into either of those buckets that you just mentioned. Commonwealth today is really a massive RIA that has its own built-in satellite broker-dealer. And this is a 20-year evolution. But today, plus or minus 75% of our revenues are derived from the RIA side of Commonwealth, and that's only growing. And the BD part is shrinking. The overwhelming majority of advisors with us today are indeed still duly registered. So they have that Series 7 hat because they have some legacy business 
on the BD side. But the biggest sea change at our firm are existing advisors dropping their FINRA registration, dropping their Series 7, and electing to move to the fee-only side of Commonwealth. And interestingly, thinking of themselves as outsourcers, the majority of them are choosing to stay as investment advisor representatives of our corporate RIA, which again has nothing to do with their brand, but it is absolutely about outsourcing in particular the compliance, but the fee billing and debiting and so forth. If you go back to your original question, I think that those breakaways want to be asking themselves two critical questions. The first one is, how much of my business today is still commission-based, including trails. And that matters. If it's more than 10%, then either going with a true hybrid solution where you start your own RIA and still have a BD affiliation, which one can do at Commonwealth, is an option, or going duly registered, which is what most folks do here, where you keep your Series 7, but you're an IAR of Commonwealth's RIA, That's probably the most trodden path industry-wide. The best thing about Commonwealth, I think, is that we've constructed what I refer to as the glide path. And that means that regardless of how you join me today, you can change your spots over time without changing your infrastructure. So go back to my initial point of how much of your business is currently commission-based versus fee-based, and maybe you're 75-25. So you're not ready to make the jump all the way to fee only. That advisor can come to Commonwealth today as duly registered. And over time, as your book matriculates more and more to fees, you can reach the point, as many of our advisors are today, where you choose to drop that Series 7, but none of your account numbers change, none of your technology changes, none of the underlying support or resources change. The familiarity that you have with that support mechanism remains intact. And you might, as your first step in that glide path, say, I want to be fee-only but I'm not yet ready to run my own RIA and do that for some period of time and then ultimately decide, and there's a few advisors at Commonwealth who have made this complete continuum, ultimately decide that you want to truly run your own registered investment advisor, which is stepping into more infrastructure management, but also into a greater level of total independence because you become responsible at the very least for your own compliance, you can do that and still leverage Commonwealth's human and technological infrastructure even in that space. So if you're thinking about it and you're you're weighing what you want to do next, I think the path that you want to take is the one that will allow you the easiest evolution over time if you're not quite there yet. And I believe there are a lot of folks at the stepping off point of the breakaway experience who aren't quite ready to go and completely run their own RIA. And I would argue coming from a regional firm or a wirehouse firm, the move to independence is complicated enough taking on some of those basic CEO responsibilities, like making sure that the lights go on on Monday morning, that adding to the weight on your shoulders of running your own RIA out of the blocks is a significant endeavor and one that takes some serious thought about how much or how little that's going to draw you away from client engagement. Andrew, one of 
the key drivers toward independence in general, whether someone is going the independent broker-dealer route, the RIA hybrid route, or a place like Commonwealth that can encompass both, one of the key drivers is long-term value creation. So do you think that an enterprise-minded advisor is a good target for Commonwealth? And let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean by that is not just the advisor who's interested in growing his or her own practice, but one who wants to add inorganic growth to the mix, who wants to grow his own practice, but then eventually recruit other advisors or open other satellite offices or do some mergers and acquisitions or the like, and then eventually be able to sell that business on the open market. Is that kind of advisor the right fit for Commonwealth? That's a good one. I'm going to talk out of both sides of my face. (laughs) On the one hand, I think I'm interested and excited to talk with anybody about their hopes and dreams for their practice. And I truly mean that. I want to work through and explore with prospective advisors where they want to go and help them understand if Commonwealth can help get them there. On the other hand, part of what makes Commonwealth successful or has made Commonwealth successful through the years is the boutiqueness to us, is the organic growth of Commonwealth where we've added on average about 110 advisors a year by design. We know what's a comfortable growth rate for us and we know how we can grow minimizing to the fullest extent possible service seam stretch for those who are already here. And we've had a few years where we've added, you know, 160, 175 folks due to circumstances in the industry. And those have always felt a little stretched. So if somebody was to come into Commonwealth wanting to inorganically grow through aggressive recruiting of their own or definitive outside acquisition, and they were really interested in playing a numbers game rather than a culture game, then they're probably not an ideal fit for us. If, however, and there's a handful of of enterprise building practices at Commonwealth today where they have a like-minded approach to how they want to grow, where service comes first for them in their practice and where it absolutely matters to them that the quality of advisor that's joining them as well as the quantity of advisors that are joining them operate in sync with Commonwealth's and their own cultural evolution, there's absolutely room for that here at Commonwealth. So we're open to it, but we do not have a massive number of those. And then if you look sort of at the industry in general, there's this phenomenon out there known as sort of super OSJs that are just mass conglomerations of a whole lot of advisors doing, I'll say, and again, I'm not saying this pejoratively, but relative to Commonwealth's average production, it's a lot of advisors doing less average business. That just isn't who we are. And, and, And if we were to go to that, I think it would violate some of the core principles of the firm that the folks who are already here have come to count on. Yeah, I think that that's reasonable. And one of the other ways I know that Commonwealth has really differentiated itself is by its cutting edge technology. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how the firm plans to continue to invest in it? Yeah, so Joe, early on, like let's go back to 1998, 
97 espoused the internet. Joe said, the internet's here to stay. We're going to be a web-based firm and Commonwealth latched on to the internet and the World Wide Web back then with vigor. 20 plus years later, we are sitting on a history of building versus buying the technological solution that we offer to our advisors. That choice goes back to the concept of being time merchants. And if we build our own technology, we're afforded two critical things. One is advisor input into the development of those tools. So as I shape model management, as I shape performance reporting, as I shape CRM, et cetera, the advisors can play a role in saying, well, when I use CRM, it works like this. Or when I manage a model, I want it to do this. And if we incorporate that thinking from them into the development and design of these tools, it stands to reason that those advisors will then be more productive and go back to my concept of I want to make them more productive through time. The other part of it is if we build all of the pieces ourselves, we get true integration. And there are a number of firms out there through the years who have bought different external pieces. And at some level, the data is integrated, but the user experience isn't. So when you move from CRM to model management, to document storage, to performance reporting, to operational workflow, it's like moving from Spanish to German to Japanese to French. And you may be fluent in all of those languages, but your brain has to shift a little bit each time you make the move. So 20 years into it, loosely speaking, over the last 15 years, we've invested more than a half a billion in that technological engine. But the pace of technological change in our industry is increasing. Every other time I open investment news today, you're reading an article on fintech. And that was a term that I don't think existed two and a half years ago. So to carry on as we have for the last 20 years and still be at the forefront of integration and development of these tools is going to be increasingly challenging because we're competing against the best in each of these classes individually. So what we decided to do was we decided to license our technology outside of Commonwealth. And we did this for two reasons. One was an added infusion of capital to allow us to remain competitive in the development of those tools. And secondly, knowing that tech is in large part paid by seat licenses, the alternative was to grow Commonwealth's BD and RIA advisor headcount at a rate that none of us were comfortable with that would have actually diluted the service model in the community of Commonwealth. So by creating a separate technology company, which we did in February called Advisor 360 and signing a license agreement with Mass Mutual that we did in April of this year, we've sort of come back to the best of both worlds. We've gotten ourselves a significant, almost immediate financial infusion into the development of our industry-leading tools. And we've allowed ourselves at the home office service and support mechanism of Commonwealth for its advisors, allowed ourselves to continue to grow with care. So I think the future for us from ongoing investment in what really is industry-leading technology is extremely bright, and I'm very excited about it. And so does licensing that technology to third parties, does it put any sort of a strain on the system and make that 
accessibility or that culture and community that defines Commonwealth, does it create any sort of a bottleneck or problem for advisors currently under the Commonwealth umbrella? So in the very short term, it probably does because the onboarding of Mass Mutual is going to take some effort by us. We took basically 250 plus or minus employees of Commonwealth who were the in-house developers, and we seeded um, the Advisor 360 company with them. Today, they, or since inception in February, they've filled about 45 slots, and there are about another 140 still to go. And we are having considerable success. And I say we because it's the Commonwealth owners who still own Advisor 360, even though it's being run as a totally separate company. In fact, one of our partners, Darren Tedesco, who's been the architect of our technology development for the last 20 years, left Commonwealth to become the president of Advisor 360. And he's doing just that. In any event, in the very short term, I think the ongoing or the immediate investment is going to slow a little bit, but I think that will be offset by early 2020 with the added input from the advisors at Mass Mutual saying, hey, these are things that we think would be cool to do or uh, enhancements that we think would be cool to make, coupled with the capital infusion. So there may be a short-term stutter that's offset measurably by a longer-term investment. Going forward, I think it's going to be an interesting adventure where Commonwealth is a client of this company the same way Mass Mutual is. I feel very confident that we will continue to have a powerful voice in the steerage of that company and that seeding the senior management with Darren, who's been at Commonwealth 25 years or who had been at Commonwealth 25 years and ideologically understands what makes us tick is going to ensure an alignment of interest between us and them for a long, long time. Let me ask you one final question. Truth is I could go on forever, but let's wrap it up. And hopefully in another couple of years, you'll come back on again. But looking down the road a bit, what do you see as the next best thing for Commonwealth? I mean, you just talked about this outsourcing technology to Mass Mutual, but what's the next best thing after that? I touched on it a little bit. The fee-only slice is the biggest thing on our plate internally today. Five years ago, we had our first internal conversion of an advisor who went fee only and he signed on to help us kind of play the MacGyver role, if you will, in the early goings of chewing gum and bailing wire taping it together. It now has grown to where we have over 50 practices that are fee only with us and and the advisor count is well over 100 where we are treating them, servicing them from a separate internal fee only pod that houses operations and compliance and so forth within that pod, appreciating that fee only advisors have a different language. There's different forms. There's different ways that they do things. And so I see in the next two plus years at Commonwealth, a massive investment of human and financial capital in expanding our fee-only commitment and service model 
partly because I think that's where our existing advisors are going and partly because I want to continue to be in position for those breakaways who see fee only in their future but aren't quite there yet, who know they want independence and who want all of that wrapped with a sense of culture and community where they feel a part of something that can support their practice for as long as they're around and beyond. Yeah. And do you think that that's where the industry as a whole is headed? Or are there any other predictions about where you think the industry is going? How can you not? I mean, if you just look at the new SEC regulation, if you look at the number of states that are frustrated with that and that are are getting close to or moving in the direction of establishing their own fiduciary rules, I think that in order to comply across this multitude of different interpretations of this rule and different, maybe not interpretations, but applications of it, more and more advisors are moving in this direction. And I think that it provides an environment where there is greater alignment between the advisor and the client, you know, to maybe coin an overused phrase, this is where the puck is going. And I'm excited that Commonwealth has been thinking like this for a long, long time. And I feel very well positioned institutionally to meet this inflection point in our industry where we are today and meet it with a service model that is good for the advisors and more importantly, good for the clients. Yeah. Andrew, I can't thank you enough. This was a really wonderful and productive conversation, and I imagine our listeners will find it that way as well. And we are grateful for your time and your insights. And judging by the feedback that we get from advisors we've put in front of Commonwealth, it's a fabulous story and one we are proud to tell often. Well, Mindy, I'm so grateful for being included. It's been fun visiting with you and sharing a little bit about what makes me and what makes Commonwealth tick. We have a fun place here and and it's equally fun to talk about it out there in in the wide world. Thank you again. Bye-bye. The first question prospective breakaways struggle with is whether to join an independent broker-dealer or form an RIA. Firms like Commonwealth believe that the IBD space is ideal for the would-be business owner who isn't quite ready to take on all the heavy lifting that being a CEO requires. Andrew's phrase, time merchants, describes the phenomenon best, the ability to lean on the guardrails while taking advantage of the freedom and flexibility of independence. In our next episode, I'll be speaking with Eric Poirier, the CEO of Adapar, one of the financial industry's leading tech platforms. In part one of this two-part series, Eric and I will discuss technology in the wirehouse world versus what's available in the independent space and how advisors can use technology to further power their businesses. Plus, he'll share what advisors need to know about technology and their options before they make the leap. It's an important episode, and I hope you'll listen in. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. There, you'll also find a link to subscribe for regular update to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908 
879-1002 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.